Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us here today in a very deserted city of Westminster as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Challoner and today I'm joined by Joanne Hunter. Joanne is a partner at Grasmere Gingerbread, a unique food production business based in Grasmere, Cumbria. Joanne, welcome to the programme. Great to have you with us um, on the programme today. Oh, thank you. It's an absolute pleasure having you. Now, at your business, Joanne, you're carrying on a tradition that dates back as far as the mid-1800s. I can imagine that being a leader in that sort of context feels like a lot of responsibility, but also a real privilege at the same time. Yes, definitely. I mean, you do feel responsible. You feel responsible to the origin of the business and to the creator. And you've always got her, Sarah Nelson, um, who started back in 1854. You've always got her at the back of your mind um, and how it all came about. And obviously, that obviously has is, is developed the ethos of the company. And if Sarah were to return, um, hypothetically speaking, what do you think that she would say to the staff at the business today? Well, I hope. I hope that she would be very pleased and honoured um, and thrilled at, at how we've taken her business forward, but preserved its origins and preserved its history um, and everything about it. We've not um, modernised it to the point of actually deterring away from the original focus. And, and actually, that's what people are buying into. So mm. you can't change it. And if you do, you'd lose that. I completely see where you're coming from there. And um, as well as, of course, um, Sarah herself, um, are there any other um, sort of examples of leaders like her who've maybe been an inspiration to you throughout your career as you've carried that tradition on? Oh, definitely Sarah has been an inspiration to me personally for the business. I think um, when I was um, studying business, um, I had, there was a couple of people that really, I really focused on, um, and that was in my mid twenties. And one of them was, um, uh, Tom Peters, mm-hmm. who wrote In Search of Excellence. And the other one was an erotic of the body shop. And, um, I think those two, two people sort of influenced the way I moved forward. And, and I think I've implemented a lot of those things within my own business when I actually came into to the business. Cause, I'm third generation to to work in the business. And obviously I had a career before coming in to run the business 20 years ago. And um, did your former career um, have any sort of influence on the way that you are running the business and how you've implemented your own personal leadership style as well? Uh, Definitely. Um, I think I have taken on board how I worked for the people and those people that in my career um, who influenced who influenced me and basically were wonderful mentors. And um, I won an award about two years ago um, for w- women in business. And um, I remember going trying to trace my bosses from like 20, 30 years ago so I could have them with me because mm. I felt that they actually molded me to the person I was and, and the way I, I, I did things. I think, that's I, really, I think that's really interesting, Joanne, because um, you mentioned, of course, that um, former bosses of yours have had a real influence um, on yourself. And mm-hmm. it is the case uh, quite a lot that, especially in business, um, the real role models and real inspirations for people are people who aren't necessarily in the public eye. Because when we think of leaders, we instantly think of sports personalities, politicians, don't we? The temptation is there to think mm-hmm. of those sorts of people. But a lot, of, quite often, so many good leaders do go under the radar in a sense. And with that in mind, do you think think that great leadership is as celebrated and recognised as much as it should be in the in this country? 
that's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> um, I think I've been thinking about this actually right at this present moment because I think that it's really wonderful that we're we're focusing on people that don't get the focus. Um, and we're not looking to for inspiration, aspiration, as so many younger generation do with with celebs. Um, and obviously that's turned. And I hope that that turn that st- still stays when we come out of this. That people will focus on the people that are doing good, and not the people that look good. Um, but I think maybe I think. So, I find in Cumbria it's very, very different than than being down in London, but Mm. we have obviously some really key people within this rural area and they're known within the area and and people look upon them for, wow, look what they're doing and they're really good and and they're they're engaged to pull in on different aspects of different projects of community activity. So I think they do get it on a local level, but I think that's very, very different in, in big environments in the city. I think they probably don't. I think people are just so busy, then they're not getting seen and they're not getting recognised. I can see exactly where you're coming from there, Joanne. And um, if we were to give some advice to the next generation of emerging leaders, do you think it would be to maybe move away from looking at celebrity and aspiring to that and instead look at these sorts of figures, these real examples of good leadership? Mm, I think we need to be starting looking inwards instead of looking outwards all the time um, because something like that is 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 it's not solid is it and and you need they need the younger generation needs something more solid to to follow through um and their their aspirations um are so they're not founded um and they need to look at some of these these key people that are, could be quite inspirational and give them a lot of advice um and to take them forward, you know, to take our country forward, um, and it, and it and it's done through through commitment and passion and hard work. And I think a younger generation just doesn't seem to. Some of them don't seem to have that, unfortunately. Um, and we can only, you know, looking back at myself personally and looking at, say, for instance, Sarah's story. If you look at her story and how tragic her life was, mm. and and she wasn't educated and she was entrepreneurial she made a success of herself through through that determination and hard work and and the younger generation i think have to appreciate and understand that that that's how you can achieve I think you're absolutely right. Um, But also what I think is um, interesting in terms of the younger generation is that it seems that there's almost, um, especially in an entrepreneurial sense, a fear of failure isn't there. Um, They very much are reluctant to try things because they're scared of getting things wrong. But on the other hand, on the flip side to that, it's not really possible, is it, to become a good leader or a good entrepreneur without trying things and without making mistakes and without learning from them, is it? Definitely. Um, and I think the, the flip side of what you're saying is the fact is they don't want to do that because they want everything now. Mm. So they're not prepared to work through something to, to, to have those failures, to gain that experience, to connect with people, to, to learn from others because they want it now. Mm, you think it's more about short-term gain than the long-term ambition? Yeah, it's short-term mm. gain and, and short-term recognition. And if obviously they... they they, if they understood it doesn't come overnight and that they have to learn and they have to gain experience and they have to build up relationships with people um, that are, would be beneficial to them. Then, But what they're looking for is they're looking for that instant recognition all the time. Mm. So they're not prepared to wait. 
I think you're um, absolutely right uh, there, Joanne. I can certainly see where you're coming from, but also as well, um, there's been um, a lot of criticism uh, from younger uh, generations, especially of um, the government's response to the COVID-19 crisis as well. And I think this sort of culture of criticism where as a leader, you're there to be shot at also maybe tempers people's aspirations to become leaders themselves, doesn't it? Because they're again, not just afraid of failure, but also afraid of criticism as well. Yeah, definitely. And... um, Um, mm, Sorry, carry on, Scott. And I was thinking um, as to um, your views on that and uh, maybe how you think um, culturally as a country that maybe could be something that we could work on because during this outbreak, we've seen a sense of national unity and we've seen a sense that we're all in this together. And do you think that maybe could be the key to sort of changing that culture around a bit and encouraging people to kind of look outside the box that little bit more? Definitely. And I think um, I've thought since the the onset of, of what's happening is that people are going to change um, and they're going to change because they're going to have different, they're going to be living differently now. They're going to have um, different aspirations and they're going to come out of this with different habits and um, they may reassess themselves personally, what they're doing and how they move forward. Um, and I hope it is for the better and, and that, that we've, we've learned something from it. It certainly is changing times and um, I do hope um, as well um, as do many other people that we can of course take the positives from this experience that we're in. There will be challenges, there will be difficulties, but there will also be opportunities as well, opportunities to reflect and to change the way that we do things, but also Mm -hmm. for businesses to be innovative and to take advantage as well. Um, I am conscious of running out of time, Joanne, but before we do wrap things up, um, do give me an idea of what you imagine the next 12 months will hold for yourself and for Grassmere Gingerbread and also what you hope to achieve in that time, particularly through the COVID-19 outbreak and out of the other side of that? I think um, I think the, 12, the next 12 months are, g- are going to be very changeable. I think we're going to have to learn to be very reactive to situations, which we have been. Um, and we personally, on, on a family level, because it's a family business, we dealt with it very differently to how we dealt with Storm Desmond, which was a significant impact on our business. And we learned from that experience. Um, And so we didn't take it. um, It wasn't as stressful. um, And we had had put things in place for for something like this to happen. So it wasn't... um, it didn't. It didn't. It wasn't consuming as much, and obviously, there's the support from the government is absolutely amazing for us and and for our staff. Um, I think that we probably will be the last um, sort of business to start to operate because obviously we're in the we're in the tourism business, um, and obviously that's a, a movement of people, um, condensed people in a very small rural area, um, and I'm prepared for that. Um, I just think the most important thing for us as a small business is that that we keep everything ticking over and that we still seem to be there and that we're caring in the community, which we are doing um, obviously some community work as well, um, and that, that we're ready for when when the time is right and that the staff are ready and that they can come back and, and they can come back in the right frame of mind. I'm obviously concerned about, um, obviously, mental health issues because um, I'm, I'm, qu- I'm quite focused on that as well, having have had mental health issues in the past. I think that's really important. I think it's been supportive to my team um, because, you know, we are in a rural area and we, we employ 17 people and that's 17 families 
that um, are part of this extended family business. So I think it's just, we just got to take it slowly and we've got to be able to, to move forward, not at some great pace because that just isn't going to happen. Mm, so sure. we've got to have, have some sort of patience. Mm. Being patient, but also balancing proactivity and reactivity as well is um, so, so important during this time. Yeah. But also and I think you just got to take uh, it one day at a time. Mm. But also, I think it's also a matter of responsibility um, from a leader's perspective to also realise that it's about their team as well as them, isn't it? Just making sure that that communication, that positive culture is still mm. very much um, being maintained right the way through this. Definitely. I mean, obviously, it's about, you know, keeping in contact with them, which we are doing. Um, We've got two members of staff that are working in complete isolation um, to run our mail order business. So they have no contact with each other whatsoever. Um, And it's just keeping the the business ticking over. And from that mail order business, we're sending out um, free gifts to frontline workers as well, um, just so that we feel that we're doing something constructive in this, in this, our need. And I think it's fantastic um, that businesses are really stepping up to the plate in their local communities, such as yourselves. Um, it's fantastic to see. And as I say, it really captures that sense of national unity and this idea that we are all in this together going forward. Um, Joanne, I have to say, it's been really insightful and also an absolute pleasure having you on uh, today's programme. And I think it would actually be really, really good if we could have you back on in a few months time, perhaps to look at all of this retrospectively and just see how those hopes are borne out once we start to see these measures lifted. Thanks so much for coming on and taking the time to speak with me today no problem thank you thank you very much indeed scott I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, Coming up next on the programme, we'll be handing over to Jonathan White for his exclusive interview with Liz Field. Liz is the Chief Executive of the Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association, the trade body for firms who provide investment management and financial advice services for both individuals and families. I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan enjoyed speaking to Liz. And that's coming up now. I'm Jonathan White, and we're joined today by Liz Field, CEO of PIMFA, Personal Investment Management and Financial Advice Association. What a great mouthful. Liz, thank you very much for coming on today. No, thank you for inviting me. No, not a problem. A complete pleasure. And I think uh, it would be a great place to start, if we may. There's maybe a little bit of background uh, for the listeners. Obviously, PIMFA does work in uh, uh, across the board these days, but of course it was only founded uh, uh, three years ago when of course um, MAPFA and uh, the WMA were merged. That's right, yes. Um, I think it really was a, a reflection of of where the industry was going in terms of uh, the provision of financial advice and helping individuals with their um, personal financial futures that we felt that it was necessary for the two bodies to merge together. Um, but both, had, well, certainly the Wealth Management Association and its predecessors have been around for nine, well, nearly 30 years yes. now, actually. But you're quite right. Um, as PIMFA, it's, it's been nearly three years now. And the, uh, probably a very wise move because uh, the, the uh, uh, PIMFA's been going from strength to strength uh, since. Uh, what would you say at the moment uh, is are, are, are the priorities uh, for yourselves there? Um, I think there are a number of priorities. I mean, we represent a diverse group of um, of businesses, which all have one thing in common, which is that they face the clients, they they face the consumer. Um, so whether that is face to face or whether that is um, 
online. Uh, it's all about helping individuals to plan and save and invest um, for themselves and for their families. Uh, but we're going through uh, a number of, of key challenges. I mean, um, looking at a, 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 a macro level, if you like, um, markets are a little turbulent. Um, it's, it's very challenging um, to... Um, kind of navigate the the uh, investment management world. So uh, even more reason why you need a financial advisor and, uh, and an investment management firm to help you um, because it is quite a complex arena. And that's not helped by the lack of financial education uh, more generally. So um, if you have that as a backdrop uh, and then politically you have what's going on um, with post-Brexit uh, and where the rules are going to come from in future, all of that is still to be negotiated. Um, so it, it's a whole melting pot of issues that uh, that our firms are trying to face. Oh, without a doubt, I think uh, it, maybe Lizzie, there's quite a few understatements there in terms of the challenges that are yes. occurring <laughs> at the moment. But there's quite a lot to pick up uh, uh, on the on those points because uh, I, I think it's 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 a, it's a unique time almost, Lizzie, isn't it, where there are a different set of challenges that advisors and individuals are uh, being confronted with from a lot of different angles. Um, and perhaps if we can start, let's start at the beginning, in fact, you bring up the issue of financial education. Yeah. Now, that's something I think uh, you can talk to anybody in the business and they'd agree with you on that front, Liz. We don't do it properly in this country. Where no. do you think, Liz, it should start from and how do we fix it? Okay, so I think, I mean, the first thing to say is that there's a lot of fantastic effort that we see across the whole of the financial services sector, uh, our sector um, amongst that, where they they try and go into schools um, and provide financial education. You go onto any website um, of some of our members and they've got some great educational material. Um, but there isn't a national framework that 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 wraps itself around the whole of the financial education efforts within our industry. And without that, um, I think they're, they're the the businesses are facing a lot of um, barriers when it comes to actually getting into schools. Um, I mean, financial education is part of the, um, per, I think it's personal health and social education um, a piece of the curriculum, but there isn't an exam um, that's at the end of it. So when it comes to schools and, and how they're being judged, it's on metrics such as um, exams and without an exam for financial education, um, I think uh, it's go it's just it's just going to keep coming up against the same barriers. Mm. Um, and financial education is not the same as maths. So uh, what we'd also quite like to see is is that we have more um, kind of money type questions within the maths curriculum, because that will also then bring it to life uh, for young people, for uh, youngsters and you know school kids. It will bring it to life because it's about things that they have to deal with or you know that they 
they deal with on a day-to-day basis, which is money. So the more that we have that is populated in the curriculum that is about money, um, the better, I think, because that then we'll start to promote a culture of, of savings and investments, which we so badly need in our in in in, in our um, in our country. Without a doubt, Liz, because and again, you've hit the nail on the head. Because there's only so much that can be done without the involvement of the curriculum in schools. Yeah, uh, and you know, you can, as you've pointed out very well, uh, it, companies can try all they all they might, but it, it's difficult if it's not a, a joint effort. Uh, yeah. And I think as, um, uh, for example, uh, with with the new government we have, there have already been positive noises at the very least, whether they become actions is another <laughs> uh, thing entirely, regarding what you could consider a, for, a, a, a far more applied mathematics in, in a lot of uh, uh, the system. But ty- time will tell. And that's something I think we could probably dedicate in the next hour to. Liz, yes, I think you're right. <laughs> we probably shouldn't. Um now, looking at and a couple of the points to pick up that you've already raised here, Liz, uh, and it goes back to the word you've already said, which is uncertainty. Uh, it, it seemed as if the markets, investors, people, we've been in a state of limbo for the last three and a half years. Uh, we're talking, of course, three months after, two months after uh, a general election that resulted in a a large majority for the Conservative Party, and therefore at least we have now uh, uh, left the European Union without without dragging you down the political rabbit hole <laughs> here, at least. Is there a hope now that because of that clarity, we may start to see a far more s- s- far more certainty in the market? And what are your hopes for the next twelve months? Um, I think. I think that we've still got a little way to go because um, whilst, you know, 31st of January came and went, um, you know, we're now, we're now in a negotiation period. We're now in a transition period. Um, and for, for UK um, savers and, uh, and investors, uh, in terms of where the rules are made, there's still, there's still not some clarity about that. Um, you know, we're, we're still, uh, well, we don't know yet whether we're still tied, um, or will be tied to the, um, European rulemaking, um, down the line. That's still to be negotiated. I mean, we've always said that actually for, for savers and investors, we need stability in the markets and we need access to funds. Um, however, it, you know, the, the majority of our of our firms look after UK savers, um, and therefore, a one of the positives we see is the ability to have a a rule book that makes sense for UK savers and investors and UK firms. Um, so there's an uh, we think that there's an opportunity there with definitely without um, watering down regulation. So we're definitely not talking about less regulation. Yes. What we're talking about is smarter regulation, which makes sense for firms and makes sense for clients. Um, and as we've got a very unique industry in terms of savings and investments um, um, in, Europe, in Europe, England, or U- the UK rather, and, and Ireland are unique amongst our European counterparties. So when you have a European rule book or a rule book that is set in Europe that doesn't bear any relation to the model of in- intermediation that we have here, that has caused us problems in the past, and we're hoping that we we will be able to affect that 
in the future with a local regulator and a local rule and a local rulemaker. But we will see. That is still all part of the of the melting pot. So whilst I'd like to be posi- positive and, and optimistic about the market, <laughs> um, we've still got this period um, of uh, of negotiation and uh, until we see where we go to with that. Uh, and of course, you've got financial services and fisheries amongst the same piece, you know. <laughs> famous fellows, aren't they? Indeed, um, absolutely, absolutely. So we've still got to wait and see, I think. It, absolutely. Um, and it will be an uh, interesting year, if nothing else. Um, yes. uh, now, you, you, you mentioned there, at least uh, the role of, uh, of course, regulators. I know uh, in the last month or so, obviously, uh, PIMFA has. Uh, given its fair amount of critique to um, the SEA, um, are they at the moment doing their job correctly? Um, I think part I I don't envy the regulator one iota. Um, uh, I think if you look at the the number of people that they have in the supervisory team and the number of firms that they have to regulate. Um, it, it, it is not an enviable job um, by any stretch of the imagination. Yes, we have been critical, not least of all because we are expecting um, better supervision to prevent firms from failing and certainly to prevent firms from failing in the spectacular way that they have uh, in the last few years, which has impacted on the size of the financial services compensation scheme levy. And this levy is paid for by by firms within the industry. And our firms are a majority of small to medium-sized firms, and their bills have gone up exponentially our criticism is that you know we we don't object to having an fscs levy um or you know the lifeboat yes. funds to pay you know recompense to to consumers uh, and and our view is has always been that the polluter pays but the polluters have have long since folded by the time mm. it comes to any payment which means that good firms are paying for bad firms. So the system, we believe, is broken. Um, and, and I think that is about the regulatory perimeter. Um, you know, what is it that the, that the lifeboat fund should be protecting? The perimeter is too big. So that, you know, what is the nature of risk? That all needs to be um, uh, redefined, we believe, and recalibrated, which then enables you to determine well, if that's what risk is, then how do we protect it and how do we levy for it? Mm. Um, and that is all linked to better supervision. So that is something we have been critical about. Um, we're in the process of finalizing a paper, uh, which we um, which we have positioned in a constructive manner, which is these are some of the things that we believe FCA, you should be looking at in your supervisory process, and we want to help you to do your job better. Now, I I know there's no such thing as a a magic wand, Liz, and perhaps it'll be putting you on the spot. <laughs> but if let's imagine, let's let's imagine you did have one just for the just for this afternoon, perhaps, and you were able to change one thing about that uh, system. And perhaps I shouldn't ask this because if your report isn't out yet, you might not want to reveal something that's in it. Um, but if you could. <laughs> Um, what would be your number one priority? 
if we if we were to if I were, my number one priority to to solve the system in terms of reform. In terms of reform, mm. what regulatory yeah, reform yes. you mean? Um, I think. Oh goodness me! The one thing. Um, it is a bit of a mean I, question. Uh, it <laughs> is. Gosh, yes. Wow. Um, I, I think it's about the regulatory perimeter. Sure. Um, I, I think let's have a look at the regulatory perimeter, um, which is you know gives some certainty to to clients about what is protected and what is not protected, which also then gives some assurity both to them and also to the advisors who have to advise those clients on what what's the pathway to success for them and what and and I think if there's some clarity around all of that, then everybody will be will be better off. Great. Now I'm conscious of the time here, Liz. It's already catching up with us. So perhaps if we can take a, a little step back and uh, and look at um, uh, the operations of Pimfer again. It's what Pimfer do, does so well is its ability to build relationships with so many uh, different uh, organisations. Can that really, Liz, be underestimated? The importance of having those working relationships with with the departments and the organizations that you do have no i don't i I think it's absolutely fundamental um to any business actually but it's certainly something that that we have in the middle of the stick of rock that is pimfa Uh, i mean we talk about that you know the values that we have as an organization We, we are a small organization uh, and we can't do our job unless we work in partnership and collaboration with others. So relationship building um, and maintaining and creating a good foundation of relationships is absolutely fundamental to what we do. Without a doubt. And I, I think that's the key point, Liz, isn't it, that that's so applicable to any realm, whether it's business or, or politics or uh, any areas of life. And I think and because of the time here, we... We, I, I must start to wrap up, but um, perhaps I can ask Liz, looking forward, and I know the next 12 months is full of uncertainty, what are uh, the plans PIMFA has for it nonetheless? Um, so I think our, well, our key priority this, this next 12 months is, is, is to be talking um, much more, um, and we, we, we have been lobbying um, a fair bit on this, but because of Brexit, um, our ability to actually kind of get into um, see the policymakers on both sides, I think, to have that dialogue has been a challenge. Um, but we're finding that that is changing. They, you know, they they want to hear from us. So I think our priority is around that regulatory perimeter. Um, and what does what does regulation look like for uh, for us moving forward? But at the same time, it's not just about the future of regulation, but it's also about the future of supervision, because the two of those go hand in hand. Um, so those those two um, are kind of what are, are the main the main areas over the course of this next year. Having said that, um, you know we have a manifesto that's got six that's got six pillars in it um, and regulation and supervision and the future of that is, is just um, kind of, is just one of those things. There are a whole host of another of other things promoting the sector as a, as a force for good and as an integral part of a, of an individual's kit bag um, for financial and mental well-being uh, is, is another key strand of, of activity. So I think, 
future of regulation, future of supervision, and then promoting the sector as an integral part of uh, of um, everybody's kit bag in building their personal financial futures. Well, Liz, there might never be a, a more important year, uh, or has not been in a while, that will determine the future of all of those things, and perhaps never a year where so many people pay attention to what happens to Britain's fish stocks. Um, but it's been <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure discussing that uh, leadership with you today. Uh, I hope very much we can sit down perhaps later this year uh, when there's a bit more clarity perhaps and talk through a few more things. Thank you. I would love to do that. Liz, thank you very much. Thank you. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.